If you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to look at the first 10 verses this morning. And if you were here last week, and if you weren't here last week, know that chapters 17, 18, and this part of 19 all fit together. This is what, this section that we're going to look at this morning is what I couldn't fit in last week. So we're looking at 1 through 10 of 19 this week, and hopefully you will see how it fits with 17 and 18, and hopefully within the whole book itself. So, almost every week I have been reviewing for you our four preliminary principles that you can't understand or interpret Revelation rightly without understanding these four things. Do you all remember that a little bit? Okay, so I want to I wanna, uh, change it up a little bit this morning. I want to ask you, and yes, I want your response. I want to work through these four principles, but I want you to tell me what they are. So does anybody remember preliminary principle number one? Thank you. God always finishes what he starts. You will never understand Revelation until you believe that or buy into that. And if you don't think that, then you'll look at Revelation in a much different way. Because the book of Revelation is connected to Genesis. And the way God set up the world is the way the world will be. He always finishes what he starts. The way that he built me and you is the way that things should function and will. God always finishes what he starts. It's the theme of Revelation. It's the point of Revelation. And it's connected to Genesis. It's always been that way. What's the second preliminary principle? Yes, we need to think about time in the way God thinks about time. So the book of Revelation does not begin, it's not the first book to tell us about the last days. When you read the New Testament, what you actually find is that the last days started with the coming of Jesus. So that the book of Revelation is actually summarizing all that will happen until the return of Christ. So this is what's been happening in the world since Jesus was born. Hopefully you've seen that week after week after week. That means that we're not trying to, well, I'll save that because it applies in many different ways. All right. Preliminary principle number three. What is it? Anybody remember this one? That's the fourth one. We'll get to that one, Lee. Someone else started talking before. Yes, yes. But there was something that we were saying to get there. It was our posture. We're supposed to have a posture of humility. So when we come to Revelation, we need to have a humble posture. That means there are things that we know and things that we don't. To Angelica's point, the book of Revelation is not a code book. So you don't read Revelation and try to crack the code. It's not a spiritual Sudoku where you just figure out how this number fits with this number, and then boom, you, you solve the puzzle. Revelation is a picture book. It's meant to give us images. And those images and the imagery is supposed to hook us at the deepest possible level of our being. So that those images are supposed to fire up our gospel imaginations. So that by reaching our imagination, it would influence our minds, our hearts, our wills, our emotions, everything about us. So that these images are meant to communicate something glorious about God. And that should change everything. So we can read the book like a child. Not having to find out all the details because that's not what's important. It's a picture book. 
It's not a code book. Fourth, least mentioned already, Jesus did it. Jesus actually accomplished something in his death and resurrection. And if you don't believe that Jesus actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection, we will have a tendency to think that evil is far stronger than it is, far more influential than it can be. But to believe that Jesus actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection means that the rest of history, which Revelation is talking about, is showing us the unfolding of what Christ has accomplished. So we're not looking forward to him reigning sometime in the future. He's already been reigning for 2,000 years because he actually did something. He actually accomplished something. He's a literal savior. He literally saves his people from their sins. And that one is probably more important than the other threes and other three in terms of understanding the book. All right. Thanks for remembering those guys. That's encouraging. That helps me know that it's good to review and that you guys care and are taking that in. So thank you. Let me read for you Revelation 19, 1 through 10. This is going to be a little bit different than last week and uh, perhaps a little more palatable, at least as you hear it off the cuff. So listen to this, Revelation 19, 1 through 10. This is God's word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Alleluia. The smoke from her grows up, goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Sound a little more exciting this week than last week? Maybe? Well, let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this gift. Sometimes we forget that your word is gift. Sometimes we think we deserve to hear everything from you, that we deserve to have your grace, that we deserve mercy. But Lord, reorient our lives so that we're actually more of a thankful people instead of living with this really warped sense of entitlement and self-centeredness. Help us to want to know more of you and who you are. 
and how graciously loving you are toward us. Through Jesus, I pray. Amen. Here's where we're going this morning, familiar roadmap. We're going to see what John sees, and then we're going to answer the question, so what? So we're going to try to see what John sees, and then answer the question, so what? You got me? That's where we're going this morning. So let's try to see what John sees. When you read these 10 verses, John sees two things. And if you're the kind that likes to paint images, then get out your blank canvas and start painting or drawing or penciling again. John sees two things, and we ought to see the things that he sees. The first thing is worship. The second is a wedding feast. Notice how this chapter begins. John sees worship going on. Did you notice that? And oh, by the way, where are we? The throne. Remember, this is pivotal for understanding the whole book. Every section, every cycle of this book lands us at the throne. So John is showing us another picture of the throne because he never wants us to leave it. He wants, us to, he wants to go so deep within us that there is one reference point for the entire universe, and it's the throne of God. There is no other reference point by which we should live our lives other than the throne of God. Because that is where we are reminded that he is holy and awesome and beautiful and powerful and sovereign and that everything, if it functions the way it is supposed to function, is built to give glory and honor to God. And that means even in the midst of living in a broken world right now, we can still give glory to God even through difficulties and challenges. John's audience was going through persecution and what they needed was God and his throne. John punctuates this throne room scene in worship for us by this word. Did you notice? Hallelujah. Did you notice that? This is the first time and the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And it's used four times here in Revelation. Chapter 19, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. This is actually a subset of the Psalms, the Hallel Psalms, Hallel, praise, Jah, Jehovah, so that John is reiterating that his worship is praising the God who is. And these four hallelujahs are basically four little praise choruses. And they build on one another. Let's look at them quickly. The first hallelujah is praising God. Why? Because salvation belongs to him and glory and honor. Do you see that? Salvation belongs to our God, beloved. When we gather for worship, please remember that the whole idea of salvation is from God, for God, and to God. The message of the gospel is not that it's from God for you. The message of the gospel, the message of salvation is from God and for God and to God. And if we are to understand anything about salvation, it is to be reminded that salvation belongs to God. And this first praise is identifying that God is the author of salvation and the, and the one who is to be boasted in because of salvation and that his salvation extends even to the putting down of evil and darkness. 
this hallelujah, the first one, is a saying that salvation even extends to the removal of darkness forever. That means that it is true. That salvation is not just about my little soul and some spiritual experience of God. That salvation is about, is about my body and my soul and the world. And it means that God will remove darkness and rebellion and sin by the root. And what Christ has done has had an effect on those who refuse Jesus and the darkness that exists, it means that Jesus is so powerful and God is so powerful and the Spirit is so powerful that darkness and evil never have a chance and that one day they're going to be gone. Gone. <laughs> and that is part of salvation. You think that's worth celebrating? The second song is not only praising God for salvation, but the fact that what he's done is final so that it can't be reversed. So guess what? Sin and evil and darkness, they're not getting in through some side door that we accidentally left unlocked. Sin and evil and darkness, when God removes them, will be gone forever and ever and ever. Amen. And God's people are praising him for salvation and praising him that what he has done will last forever. And third, what you begin to see is that all of the created order enter into this hallelujah, praising God. Remember the, remember the, remember the concentric circles? Remember the, 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 the four thrones and the 24 thrones, the two circles? Here they are erupting in praise because of salvation belongs to God that affects the ultimate removal and that it will be final. And then finally, the fourth little hymn, the fourth praise chorus, is that God is all in all. He's reigning. He will be everything. When we praise God for the final, consummate expression of salvation, which involves the final removal of evil, which will last forever, which involves all of the created order praising God, guess what's left? The triune God. And he will be everything. He will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. Plenty of other places. Look, this is the consummation of everything. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I love looking at Revelation 4 and 5 with you. Here we've taken another step, but we're still at the throne. Beloved, aren't you looking forward to this? Well, maybe I need to start here. Do you believe this? I sure hope that you do. Because if you don't, you can't stop it. And if you do, hit your wagon to this train. This is glorious stuff. This is eternity. This is our future. This is inevitable. This is invincible. This is real. <laughs> and that's where John begins. Can you see what he sees? Do you want to be there? You can understand why toward the close of these uh, first 10 verses, John uh, hears the message from the angel and then begins to worship him, right? 
You, that makes sense, right? I mean, he's so overwhelmed with the, the praising and the so uh, overwhelmed with the building of praise and, and so overwhelmed with the truth that he is compelled to see this beautiful angel and hear the, the, the words from him and then begin to worship. And the angel's like, whoa, John. Like, I believe this stuff too. I'm just telling it to you. Uh, John, uh, I am not to be worshiped. You need to worship God. You ever been in those situations where you've been so overwhelmed with joy and thankfulness that you just said the wrong thing? And the person had to be like, whoa, a little too far there. That's John. Here he is, finally acting like Peter a little bit, like he's really excited. John's been much more reserved. We can't go down that rabbit trail. But look, look, John is enthralled, and he does what all of us would do. You start saying something that you shouldn't say and doing something you shouldn't do because you're so overwhelmed with what you see. We always have to be redirected to remember to worship God, don't we? I mean, how many times have great things happened to our li- in our lives and we begin to praise the person rather than taking that back to God? Same thing that John's doing here. The second thing that he sees is the wedding feast. Now, the background to understand this, remember it's Jewish background. So that means we have to understand what it meant to be married and what all that meant in Jewish culture. So here's a little history of what that meant. So when two people decide to get married, they became betrothed, which our rough analogy is engaged. Two people are engaged. Well, when engagement happens in Jewish culture, the two people that were supposed to ultimately be married would live separately. And that gave time for the families to meet together and to figure out how much the dowry would be. And as the families hashed that out and they arrived on an appropriate price, an appropriate fund from which this new couple would build their family and whatnot and how these families would join together and what all that meant. Once they finally agreed upon the dowry and once it was paid, then the planning started for the wedding ceremony. And after the planning was, was, um, was worked out, the ceremony would happen, and then there would be a feast of celebration from anywhere from three to 14 days any of y'all ever been to a wedding where there was a feast for three to 14 days afterwards? My hunch is, as much as you might have enjoyed whatever celebrations you've had at an American wedding, that after two or three hours, you're probably looking at this clock thinking, now when are the bride and groom going to get out of here? And I promise you, the bride and the groom were thinking to themselves, uh, we got some things to take care of. We're ready to get out of here. In the ancient world, it was three to 14 days. This is what makes the first miracle of Jesus so profound when the families ran out of wine. Do you remember that? Because the groom was responsible to provide the party. And it should be a bang-up party. People should have a blast at this party for days. And running out of wine meant that that family was in jeopardy of social ostracization that people would look down upon the groom's family if the party wasn't great. So, John is giving us this image of the wedding feast because he knows that his audience understands that this is a really big deal. And there's to be celebration and joy, and it is to last for a while. For this, forever. 
But in our culture, if we lived back then, three to 14 days. You see, John is trying to get us to connect the gospel to all this, right? You see that, right? Because the bride of Jesus has been chosen when? Before the foundation of the world, right? So then in the unfolding of God's revelation, in the unfolding of his word, what do we find in the Old Testament? We find that a Messiah would be coming. And a Messiah would be looking for a bride. And, and the Messiah would think of his church as a bride. And he would be ready to lay down his, his life for his bride. And oh yeah, the Old Testament also tells us the hard words about the bride that Jesus was seeking. Do you remember how she is described in many places in the Old Testament? <clears throat> how we are described? Very promiscuous. Remember the book of Hosea? If you've never heard that before, go read it. It's telling us that we are like prostitutes that are promiscuous, that we commit spiritual adultery all the time, and that Jesus is looking for that. He's not looking for perfect people. He's not looking for good people. He's coming to pursue a wayward bride. And what was the payment? His death and resurrection. And what are we doing now? We're waiting until all the stuff that's been prophesied in the Old Testament is coming true and Jesus returns. And then what happens? Well, if we see what John sees, there's going to be an awful lot of worship and there's going to be an awful lot of feasting and joy forever. Do you see it? Because if you see it, then you see what John sees. And you're starting to connect all the gospel stuff throughout all of the Bible into this, which is what you're supposed to do. Because it makes Jesus look really, really good, doesn't it? And it makes us look like a people who should be worshiping, doesn't it? And it makes us live with great expectation. All right, so what? Let's see if we can get through some of these. I totally blew this at the nine o'clock, so I'll try not to do it again. But so what? What does this mean for my life? If I see what John sees and I see this worship going on that I can participate in and I see this wedding going on that, that I'm invited to, oh yeah, let's not forget that. Today, you're invited. You're invited to this wedding feast. You. Yeah, you. You. You're invited. And what does it mean to come? It means to believe in Jesus. It means to believe that you need to be married to Jesus. It means that you can see yourself as awfully wayward and a spiritual harlot, and Jesus is the one for you. This invitation is real. This invitation is genuine. And this invitation is personal. So if you believe in Jesus, guess what? Come to the feast. If you believe in Jesus, come to him again and again and again. And if you've never come to Jesus, he's inviting you. Truly and genuinely, he's inviting you. Come as you are. He's paid the whole price. And all will end with joy and a feast forever in praise. So what? Well, to dig down on this a little bit, the first thing is this. God is communicating how he really 
relates to us. God is telling us how he relates to us. Look, is God a king? You better believe it. Does it relate to us as a king? Absolutely. God is our shepherd. Does he relate to us as a shepherd does sheep? Absolutely. We read, just read Psalm 23 together for the call to worship. Absolutely. But God wants us to know that he relates to us like this. What are you talking about? Like a marriage. You know, the thing that is about the greatest commitment, greatest vulnerability, comprehensive, if you want to understand what life with God is like, he's showing you. It's like a marriage. It means that he knows everything about you. You can't hide anything from him. But, but you, know, you know the other side of that coin? Oh, think about how vulnerable he has been towards you. He came to the earth. He took on human form. He's tempted where you're tempted. He can sympathize with you in every conceivable way. He made himself vulnerable. Have you been through pain? He has too. Have you been betrayed by friends? He has too. Have you been hurt? He has too. Have you agonized over the will of God? He has too. He has made himself vulnerable for you so that you might recognize how vulnerable Jesus has been for you and that you might recognize that you should be as equally vulnerable to him and that his relationship with him is totally comprehensive and absolutely intimate, as intimate as it gets. And that means this. If you understand that that's the gospel and understand that's what it means to be in relationship with God, it means that it changes the way you look at sin and rebellion. Because you can't any longer just think about sin and rebellion as breaking rules. Because if you're in a marriage relationship with somebody and you're committed and you're vulnerable and it's comprehensive, it's not breaking the rules. It's breaking their heart, isn't it? And that means when we rebel against God, we break his heart. Because that's the kind of relationship that we're in with him by grace. And that means to push further what we talked about last week. All the allurements of the prostitute and the seductive nature of her ways. It means that we need to look at our jobs and our careers and our hobbies and the places where God has put, a, put us in authority and places where he has given us responsibility. And we need to think about do we have a friend relationship with each of those? Or are we in bed with them? Your job is really important. Your career is really important. But is it your friend? Or are you in bed with it? Does it control everything about you? God has given you authority. He's given you to some degree power and responsibility in your life. Are you friends with that? Or are you in bed with it? where you have to have it and you have to wield it in a certain way so that everybody will know that you're the one who's in charge. Your hobbies, you friends with them? Are they actually your lovers? Changes everything, doesn't it? To realize that God's saying, this is what my relationship with you is like. It means you need to rethink sin and rethink how you're looking at everything that you're doing in your life. 
The second thing of the so what is this. This is meant to be a blessing. Have you forgotten that? Like remember chapter one and verse three? Revelation was written to be a blessing. So have you ever read this book or ever had a teaching on this book and, and it's ever instilled in your fear? I'm sorry, you missed it. This book is meant to be a blessing. And as hard as that may be to take in, think about it for a second. Look, I, I know, I know. Last week was difficult. It's hard to think about the counterfeit. And it's really hard to think about the, the, the plan of, um, that our great enemy uses to try to sway people. It's really hard to think about that. It's really hard to go through this book and receive what God has for us. Because it's really hard to think about the reality that evil and darkness in the world are advancing and will advance. It's not easy to take that in, is it? Evil will advance. Darkness will advance. Hear me. It's true. It's always been that way. It's even harder to take in that if I'm a follower of Jesus that I could lose my life. I could be persecuted. It's not easy to take in, is it? It's not easy to take in that the mark of the counterfeit is not physical but spiritual, which means that we can buy into the ideology of the enemy and we can start to live that out. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? It's a whole lot easier to think that the mark of a beast is something that's physical and we can just avoid all that stuff because we're better. But to understand that the mark of the beast is spiritual, that it's on the head, it's ideological, and it's on our hand, it's how we carry it out, that the ways of our enemy we actually are enticed by and attracted to, and to hear the same thing that dooms others also dooms us, that's not easy to take in, is it? That's hard. But beloved, what has been running on a parallel train to all of that and more is the overwhelming truth of the throne and what Christ has accomplished. In other words, there ought to be this momentum building in our lives where we're understanding more about how sin and darkness will advance, but they're limited. We ought to understand more about how we are attracted to what they offer, what is offered to us. But at the same time, we ought to understand what Christ has done should create in us an overwhelming sense of joy and momentum of moving forward. Remember the seven seals? Where did we end up? That landed with silence in heaven. Do you remember? Where God always hears our prayer. Always. Do you remember the seven trumpets that were after that? Where did it land? It landed with the kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdom of God. Do you remember that? How about the seven bowls? Do you remember where that landed? With these words, it is finished. The words that John recorded that Jesus said on the cross 2,000 years ago have continued to reverberate through all of history with power. That's exciting. 
And God telling us that the counterfeit is put down and doomed. That's exciting. There should be an overwhelming sense of joy and gratitude and momentum moving forward because of what Christ has accomplished. This is a blessing for you. Will you take it in? This is a blessing for you to understand what is happening in the world and to know where everything will end up. It's a blessing. And that means if you're here this morning and you are exploring Christianity and just thinking about what does it mean, it means, yes, this is our view of reality. It's a story. And there are four parts. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. It means if you're just exploring Christianity, listen to this four-part story. It means that you the way the Christians and followers of Jesus look at the world, you were created with intrinsic worth. It means that the brokenness and the rebellion that, the, that you see in the world is absolutely real and you just need to own your responsibility of it and in it and with it. And it means that it might be easier for you to do that because you have been on the receiving end of the brokenness and sin of the world. That's true too. But the only answer for all of that is nothing short of God coming to earth. Yes, literal God. Yes, we believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, and he is the only answer to all of the problems of the world, yours and mine, collectively. And that what he did through his death and resurrection actually meant that God was satisfied And it also meant that one day all things will be made new. Everything will be restored. So there really is meaning in the world. There really is purpose for your life. There really is hope that you can have in this world and in this life. You can have hope. If you're just exploring Christianity, that's what we think. It's true. I know it may sound crazy, but it's true. If you are realizing that you have grown up in or only been exposed to a warped view of Christianity, meaning that you are beginning to realize that what you think is Christian is far more cultural than it is biblical, keep going. It means that if you're hearing these words and you're beginning to understand I only heard two parts. Christianity was just mentioned to me as, as rebellion and redemption, period. There's four? Keep coming. Keep going. It means that if you're beginning to realize that the warped view of Christianity that you had was man-centered rather than God-centered, it means that if you are beginning to realize that there really is something different that's deeper and far more meaningful, keep going. Keep deconstructing what you have heard and what you've been taught or what you've read. Keep going. 
and deconstruct in light of what the Bible actually says and deconstruct in light of the centrality of Jesus and the gospel. Keep going. Don't stop. And if you're kind of in favor of the four-part story and you're beginning to crave it more and more, then will you stop believing? Will you stop giving more credit to evil and darkness than you should? Will you, will you actually, if you believe in the four-part story and you actually believe that this is reality, will you actually believe that God is sovereign afresh? Will you actually believe that all things are gonna be restored one day and live like it? Will you fight against the tendency to think that you should be preoccupied with what is unstable and be more committed to what is invincible? If you really think that evil is growing, and you should, and if you really think that the kingdom is growing, and you should, will you be more involved in missions? Will you live a more missional life? Will you actually care about planting churches? Especially if you believe that Christianity is on decline in our country, will you do something about it? And what I mean by that is, will you love your neighbor? Will you pray? Will you be committed to missions and living a missional life and caring about planting churches? Will you do that? Or are you just excited about being upset? And does that just turn your crank? If you believe in this stuff, will you live like it? I'm not calling for any weird kind of radical fanaticism here. I'm simply saying, will you love your neighbor? I'm saying, will you love your enemy? I'm saying, will you stop living your life needing an enemy to exist to make you go forward? Will you just believe what's true and live by the truth and be excited about the truth? Will you give of your resources? Will you give of your time? Will you care about people? Will you move toward them? Really, that is so important. Will you realize that the church is not supposed to make your lives busier, but to free you up and equip you so that you can be an ordinary person doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality? The final so what is this? Feasting is really important to God. Really important to God. You know, you know what our culture values? Busyness. Efficiency. Individuality. Comfort, 
right? You get that, right? I mean, I mean, you do realize that if you're really busy in our culture, it means you're really important, right? So the busier you are, the more important you are. The more efficient you are, more than likely, the more you'll get promoted. You realize that, right? Because efficiency is equated with production. So the more efficient you are, the more productive you are, therefore, the more you will advance because that's what our culture values. Then you do realize how individualistic we are, right? Doesn't work for you, then why should you do it? Sacrifice? Well, I may sacrifice for something as long as everybody knows that I'm sacrificing so that they end up praising me. Beloved, we live in a culture of speed and efficiency and individuality. That's not the way God works. God does not value efficiency the way that we do, does he? Try to take that in. When the fall happened in Genesis 3, it was thousands of years before Jesus came. None of us would consider that very efficient. If you read the probably the top 25 leadership books on the New York Times bestseller list that tell you how to be a leader, none of them would fit Jesus. God values slowing down. God values reflection and sharing joy and relationship with people. God values taking time to be still. And that means you're not going to be as efficient as you could be. And it means that you got to get in out of your individuality. And it means you need to spend time with people and celebrate. You need to feast. Because it's when you feast with people, you share and you talk and you slow down. So I want to challenge you. What is something that you can feast over and that you will feast with others? When when can you do that? Like I said, you know that, that now's the time to plan. Things are not totally freed up yet. People are more nervous on one side or the other. But instead of complaining about everything, which we're prone to do, will you plan to meet with people? If you're not comfortable meeting with anybody yet, will you plan to do that? Will you plan to open up yourself to people? Will you plan to celebrate something with people? Will you do that? Even if that just has to start just with your family before it extends somewhere else. But are you open to that? Will you do that? Because in our culture and the way that we're going, nobody's going to feast anymore. Nobody's going to slow down anymore. Nobody's going to care about anybody else unless you can do something for me. In God's community, his church is very, very radically culturally different. We don't value the same things that our culture does. Oh, by the way, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes feasts in the Bible are a foretaste of gospel advancement. You ever thought about that? 
Remember when God's people were in Egypt? Had no chance. They had no hope. But before God plundered the Egyptians, what did he have his people do? A meal. Well, God, that doesn't sound very, you know, powerful at all. God wanted his people to feast and celebrate his victory before it happened, right? They had to get together with their loved ones and their families and other families, and they had to feast and they had to celebrate because God was about to plunder the Egyptians. Do you remember that? Do you remember the cross when Jesus went to the cross? Do you remember what he did with his disciples right before he was betrayed and taken to the cross? He feasted. Why did he do that? Because he wanted his people to slow down and take in what was about to happen, even though they didn't understand, just like we don't. He was preparing them for gospel advancement. Do you realize what we have here in Revelation 19 is a picture for us of that great feast that's going, that's at least the way John records it, is right before the final battle that we'll talk about next week. Why? Because there's gospel advancement. Can I get more personal? We've been taking communion every week together since July. That means every week when you take communion, guess what's happening? You're feasting before you receive God's blessing and go out into God's world and push back on the kingdom of darkness. Do you realize that? Yes, your everyday life means something. Yes, Jesus literally said, the gates of hell will not prevail. Remember that? Whose gates is God talking about? Hell's gates. Why will the gates of hell not prevail? Because something is pushing against it positively, proactively. What is pushing against the gates of hell? The church, the gospel, his kingdom. Do you understand you're part of this? You celebrate this every week so that you can go out and push against the effects of sin and brokenness and darkness. Do you realize that? It's true. That means that we need to do a whole lot more feasting together. There are things in my house that we got to celebrate. We need to feast about one of my son, well, my oldest is graduating high school. He has done some other things and clubs and things he's been involved with. My, my youngest daughter and my, my oldest daughter have like made it through this crazy year of school. Like there are things to celebrate. What are you going to celebrate? Who are you going to celebrate with? Will you feast and not think that it's dumb or a waste of time? Will you join with others and do that? The only way we'll do that is by realizing the feast that's for you.